Chapter 16, Part 1 of The Quest of the Historical Jesus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Quest of the Historical Jesus by Albert Schweitzer. Translated by William Montgomery. Chapter 16, Part 1 The Struggle Against Eschatology. Bibliography. Wilhelm Busset. The Antithesis Between Jesus' Preaching and Judaism, A Religious Historical Comparison, Göttingen, 1892, 130 pages. Eric Haupt, The Eschatological Sayings of Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels, 1895, 167 pages. Paul Wernle, The Beginnings of Our Religion, Tumingen, Leipzig, 1901, 2nd edition, 1904, 410 pages. Emil Schurer, The Messianic Self-Consciousness of Jesus, 1903, 24 pages. Wilhelm Brandt, The Gospel History and the Origin of Christianity, based upon a critical study of the narratives of the sufferings and resurrection of Jesus, Leipzig, 1893, 591 pages. Adolf Jolliker, The Parables of Jesus, Volume 1, 1888, 291 pages. Volume 2, 1899, 643 pages. In this period, the important books are short. The 67 pages of Johannes Weiss are answered by Bousset in a bare 130. People began to see that the elaborate lives of Jesus, which had hitherto held the field and enjoyed an immortality of revised editions, only masked the fact that the study of the subject was at a standstill, and that the tedious rehandling of the problems which had been solved so far as they were capable of solution, only served as an excuse for not grappling with those which still remained unsolved. This conviction is expressed by Bousset at the beginning of his work. The criticism of the sources, he says, is finished, and its results may be regarded, so far as the life of Jesus is concerned, as provisionally complete. The separation between John and the synoptists has been secured. For the synoptists, the two-document hypothesis has been established, according to which the sources are a primitive form of Mark and a collection of Logia. A certain interest might still attach to the attempt to arrive at the primitive kernel of Mark, but the attempt has a priori so little prospect of success that it was almost a waste of time to continue to work at it. It would be a much more important thing to get rid of the feeling of uncertainty and artificiality in the lives of Jesus. What is now chiefly wanted, Bousset thinks, is, quote, a firmly drawn and lifelike portrait which, with a few bold strokes, should bring out clearly the originality, the force, and the personality of Jesus. Close quote. It is evident that the center of the problem has now been reached. That is why the writing becomes so terse. The masses of thought can only be maneuvered here in a close formation such as vice gives them. The loose order of discursive exegetical discussions of separate passages is now no longer in place. The first steps towards further progress was the simple one of marshalling the passages in such a way as to gain a single consistent impression from them. 
In the first instance, Bousset is as ready as Johannes Weiss to admit the importance for the mind of Jesus of the eschatological then and now. The realistic school, he thinks, are perfectly right in endeavoring to relate Jesus, without apologetic or theological inconsistencies, to the background of contemporary ideas. Later, in 1901, he was to make it a reproach against Harnack's What is Christianity? that it did not give sufficient importance to the background of contemporary thought in its account of the preaching of Jesus. He goes on to ask, however, whether the first enthusiasm over the discovery of this genuinely historical way of looking at things should not be followed by some second thoughts of a deeper character. Accepting the position laid down by Johannes Weiss, we must ask, he thinks, whether this purely historical criticism by the exclusive emphasis which it has laid upon eschatology, has not allowed the, quote, essential originality and power of the personality of Jesus to slip through its fingers, close quote, and closed its grasp instead upon contemporary conceptions and imaginations which are often of a quite special character. The late Jewish eschatology was, according to Bosset, by no means a homogeneous system of thought. Realistic and transcendental elements stand side by side in it, unreconciled. The genuine popular belief of late Judaism still clung quite naively to the earthly realistic hopes of former times, and had never been able to rise to the purely transcendental regions which are the characteristic habitat of apocalyptic. The rejection of the world is never carried out consistently. Something of the Jewish national ideal always remains. And for this reason, late Judaism made no progress towards the overcoming of particularism. Probably, Bousset holds, this apocalyptic thought is not even genuinely Jewish. He is ably argued in another work. There was a considerable strain of Persian influence in it. The dualism, the transference to the transcendental region of the future hope, the conception of the world, which appears in Jewish apocalyptic, are of Iranian rather than Jewish origin. Two thoughts are especially characteristic of Bousset's position. First, that this transcendentalizing of the future implied a spiritualization of it. Secondly, that in post-exilic Judaism there was always an undercurrent of a purer and more spontaneous piety the presence of which is especially to be traced in the Psalms. Into a dead world, where a kind of incubus seems to stifle all naturalness and spontaneity, there comes a living man. According to the formulae of his preaching and the designations which he applies to himself, he seems at first to identify himself with this world rather than to oppose it. But these conceptions and titles, especially the kingdom of God and the Son of Man, must be provisionally left in the background, since they, as being conceptions taken over from the past, conceal rather than reveal what is most essential in his personality. The primary need is to discover, behind the phenomenal, the real character of the personality and preaching of Jesus. The starting point must therefore be the simple fact that Jesus came as a living man into a dead world. He is living because in contrast with his contemporaries he has a living idea of God. 
His faith in the fatherhood of God is Jesus' most essential act. It signifies a breach with the transcendental Jewish idea of God and an unconscious inner negation of the Jewish eschatology. Jesus, therefore, walks through a world which denies his eschatology like a man who has firm ground under his feet. That which, on a superficial view, appears to be eschatological preaching, turns out to be essentially a renewal of the old prophetic preaching with its positive ethical emphasis. Jesus is a manifestation of that ancient spontaneous piety of which Bousset had shown the existence in late Judaism. The most characteristic thing in the character of Jesus, according to Bousset, is his joy in life. It is true that if, in endeavoring to understand him, we take primitive Christianity as our starting point, we might conceive of this joy in life as the complement of the eschatological mood, as the extreme expression of indifference to the world, which can as well enjoy the world as flee it. But the purely eschatological attitude, though it reappears in early Christianity, does not give the right clue for the interpretation of the character of Jesus as a whole. His joy in the world was real, a genuine outcome of his new type of piety. It prevented the eudaimonistic eschatological idea of reward, which some think they find in Jesus' preaching, from ever really becoming an element in it. Jesus is best understood by contrasting him with the Baptist. John was a preacher of repentance, whose eyes were fixed upon the future. Jesus did not allow the thought of the nearness of the end to rob him of his simplicity and spontaneity, and was not crippled by the reflection that everything was transitory, preparatory, a mere means to an end. His preaching of repentance was not gloomy and forbidding. It was a proclamation of a new righteousness, of which the watchword was, Ye shall be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. He desires to communicate this personal piety by personal influence. In contrast with the Baptist, he never aims at influencing masses of men, but rather avoids it. His work was accomplished mainly among little groups and individuals. He left the task of carrying the gospel far and wide as a legacy to the community of his followers. The mission of the Twelve, conceived as a mission for the rapid and widespread extension of the gospel, is not to be used to explain Jesus' method of teaching. The narrative of it rests on an obscure and unintelligible tradition. This genuine joy in life was not unnoticed by the contemporaries of Jesus, who contrasted him as a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, with the Baptist. They were vaguely conscious that the whole life of Jesus was, quote, sustained by the feeling of an absolute antithesis between himself and his times, close quote. He lived not in anxious expectation, but in cheerful gladness, because of the native strength of his piety, he had brought present and future into one. Free from all extravagant Jewish delusions about the future, he was not paralyzed by the conditions which must be fulfilled to make this future present. He has a peculiar conviction of its coming, which gives him courage to marry the present with the future. The present, as contrasted with the beyond, is for him no mere shadow, but truth and reality. Life is not for him a mere illusion, 
but is charged with a real and valuable meaning. His own time is the messianic time, as his answer to the Baptist's question shows. Quote, and it is among the most certain things in the gospel that Jesus, in his earthly life, acknowledged himself as Messiah both to his disciples and to the high priest, and made his entry into Jerusalem as such. Close quote. He can, therefore, fully recognize the worth of the present. It is not true that he taught that this world's goods were in themselves bad. What he said was only that they must not be put first. Indeed, he gives a new value to life by teaching that man cannot be righteous in isolation, but only in the fellowship of love. And as, moreover, the righteousness which he preaches is one of the goods of the kingdom of God, he cannot have thought of the kingdom as wholly transcendental. The reign of God begins for him in the present era. His consciousness of being able to cast out demons in the spirit of God because Satan's kingdom on earth is at an end is only the supernaturalist expression for something of which he also possesses an ethical consciousness, namely, that in the new social righteousness the kingdom of God is already present. This presence of the kingdom was not, however, clearly explained by Jesus, but was set forth in paradoxes and parables, especially in the parables of Mark chapter 4. When we find the evangelist, in immediate connection with these parables, asserting that the aim of the parables was to mystify and conceal, we may conclude that the basis of this theory is the fact that these parables concerning the presence of the kingdom of God were not understood. In effecting this tacit transformation, Jesus is acting in accordance with a tendency of the time. Apocalyptic is itself a spiritualization of the ancient Israelitish hopes of the future, and Jesus only carries this process to its completion. He raises late Judaism above the limitations in which it was involved, separates out the remnant of national, political, and sensuous ideas which still clung to the expectation of the future in spite of its having been spiritualized by apocalyptic, and breaks with the Jewish particularism, though without providing a theoretical basis for this step. Thus, in spite of, nay, even because of his opposition to it, Jesus was the fulfiller of Judaism. In him were united the ancient and vigorous prophetic religion, and the impulse which Judaism itself had begun to feel towards the spiritualization of the future hope. The transcendental and the actual meet in a unity which is full of life and strength, creative, not reflective, and therefore not needing to set aside the ancient traditional ideas of didactic explanations, but overcoming them almost unconsciously by the truth which lies in this paradoxical union. The historical formula embodied in Bousset's closing sentence runs thus, quote, The gospel develops some of the deeper-lying motifs of the Old Testament, but it protests against the prevailing tendency of Judaism. Such of the underlying assumptions of this construction as invite challenge lie open to inspection, and do not need to be painfully disentangled from a web of exegesis. That is one of the merits of the book. The chief points to be queried are as follows. 
is it the case that the apocalypses mark the introduction of a process of spiritualization applied to the ancient israelitish hopes a picture of the future is not spiritualized simply by being projected upon the clouds this elevation to the transcendental region signifies on the contrary the transference to a place of safety of the eudaimonistic aspirations which have not been fulfilled in the present and which are expected by way of compensation from the other world the apocalyptic conception is so far from being a spiritualization of the future expectations that it represents on the contrary the last desperate effort of a strongly eudaimonistic popular religion to raise to heaven the earthly goods from which it cannot make up its mind to part next we must ask is it really necessary to assume the existence of so wide-reaching a persian influence in jewish eschatology the jewish dualism and the sublimation of its hope have become historical just because owing to the fate of the nation the religious life of the present and the fair future which was logically bound up with it became more and more widely separated temporally and locally until at last only its dualism and the sublimation of its hope enabled the nation to survive its disappointment again is it historically permissible to treat the leading ideas of the preaching of jesus which bear so clearly the marks of the contemporary mould of thought as of secondary importance for the investigation and to endeavour to trace jesus's thoughts from within outwards and not from without inwards further is there really in judaism no tendency towards the overcoming of particularism has not its eschatology as shaped by the deutero-prophetic literature a universalistic outlook did jesus overcome particularism in principle otherwise than it is overcome in jewish eschatology that is to say with reference to the future what is there to prove that jesus's distinctive faith in the fatherhood of god ever existed independently and not as an alternative form of the historically conditioned messianic consciousness in other words what is there to show that the religious attitude of jesus and his messianic consciousness are anything else than identical temporally and conceptually so that the first must always be understood as conditioned by the second again is the saying about the gluttonous man and the wine-bibber a sufficient basis for the contrast between jesus and the baptist is not jesus's preaching of repentance gloomy as well as the baptist's where do we read that he in contrast with the baptist avoided dealing with the masses of men where did he give the community of his disciples marching orders to go far and wide in the sense required by Bousset's argument where is there a word to tell us that he thought of his work among individuals and little groups of men as the most important feature of his ministry are we not told the exact contrary that he taught his disciples as little as he did the people is there any justification for characterizing the missionary journey of the twelve just because it directly contradicts this view as an obscure and unintelligible tradition is it so certain that jesus made a messianic entry into jerusalem and that accordingly he declared himself to the disciples and to the high priest as messiah in the present and not in a purely future sense 
what are the sayings which justify us in making the attitude of opposition which he took up towards the rabbinic legalism into quote, a sense of the absolute opposition between himself and his people close quote. the very absolute with its ring of schleiermacher is suspicious all these however are subsidiary positions the decisive position is can Bousset make good the assertion that Jesus's joy in life was a more or less unconscious inner protest against the purely eschatological world-renouncing religious attitude, the primal expression of that absolute antithesis to Judaism? Is it not the case that his attitude towards earthly goods was wholly conditioned by eschatology? That is to say, were not earthly goods emptied of any essential value in such a way that joy in the world and indifference to the world were simply the final expression of an ironic attitude which had been sublimated into pure serenity this is the question upon the answer to which depends the decision whether Bousset's position is tenable or not it is not in fact tenable for the opposite view has at its disposal inexhaustible reserves of world-renouncing world-condemning sayings and the few utterances which might possibly be interpreted as expressing a purely positive joy in the world desert and go over to the enemy because they textually and logically belong to the other set of sayings finally the promise of earthly happiness as a reward to which Bousset has denied a position in the teaching of jesus also falls upon his rear and that in the very moment when he is seeking to prove from the saying seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you that for jesus this world's goods are not in themselves evil but are only to be given a secondary place here the eudaimonism is written on the forehead of the saying since the receiving of these things we must remember too the hundredfold in another passage is future not present and will only come at the same time as the kingdom of god all present goods on the other hand serve only to support life and render possible an undistracted attitude of waiting in pious hope for that future and therefore are not thought of as gains but purely as a gift of god to be cheerfully and freely enjoyed is a foretaste of those blessings which the elect are to enjoy in the future divine dispensation the loss of this position decides the further point that if there is any suggestion in the teaching of jesus that the future kingdom of god is in some sense present it is not to be understood as implying an anti-eschatological acceptance of the world but merely as a phenomenon indicative of the extreme tension of the eschatological consciousness just in the same way as his joy in the world Bousset has a kind of indirect recognition of this in his remark that the presence of the kingdom of god is only asserted by jesus as a kind of paradox if the assertion of its presence indicated that acceptance of the world formed part of jesus's system of thought it would be at variance with his eschatology but the paradoxical character of the assertion is due precisely to the fact that his acceptance of the world is but the last expression of the completeness with which he rejects it but what do critical cavils matter in the case of a book of which the force the influence the greatness depends upon its spirit 
it is great because it recognizes what is so rarely recognized in theological works the point where the main issue really lies in the question namely whether jesus preached and worked as messiah or whether as follows if a prominent place is given to eschatology as colani had long ago recognized his career historically regarded was only the career of a prophet with an undercurrent of messianic consciousness as a consequence of grasping the question in its full significance Bousset rejects all the little devices by which previous writers had endeavored to relate Jesus' ministry to his times, each one prescribing to what point he was to connect himself with it, and of course proceeding in his book to represent him as connecting himself with it in precisely that way. Bousset recognizes that the supreme importance of eschatology in the teaching of Jesus is not to be got rid of by whittling away a little point here and there, and rubbing it smooth with critical sandpaper until it is capable of reflecting a different thought, but only by fully admitting it, while at the same time counteracting it by asserting a mysterious element of world acceptance in the thought of Jesus, and conceiving his whole teaching as a kind of alternating current between positive and negative poles this is the last possible sincere attempt to limit the exclusive importance of eschatology in the preaching of jesus an attempt so gallant so brilliant that its failure is almost tragic one could have wished success to the book to which carlyle might have stood sponsor that it is inspired by the spirit of carlyle that it vindicates the original force of a great personality against the attempt to dissolve it into congeries of contemporary conceptions, therein lies at once its greatness and its weakness. Bousset vindicates Jesus not for history, but for Protestantism, by making him the heroic representative of a deeply religious acceptance of the goods of life amid an apocalyptic world. His study is not unhistorical, but supra-historical. The spirit of Jesus was in fact world-accepting, in the sense that through the experience of centuries it advanced historically to the acceptance of the world, since nothing can appear phenomenally which is not in some sense ideally present from the first. But the teaching of the historical Jesus was purely and exclusively world-renouncing. If, therefore, the problem which Bousset has put on the blackboard for the eschatological school to solve is to be successfully solved, the solution is to be sought on other, more objectively historical lines. That the decision of the question whether Jesus' preaching of the kingdom of God is wholly eschatological or partly eschatological is primarily to be sought in his ethical teaching is recognized by all the critics of Baldensberger and Weiss. They differ only in the importance which they assign to eschatology but no other writer has grasped the problem as clearly as Bousset. End of chapter 16, part 1